Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Nom Pro Show Book Reviews. I'm James, and I'm here with Gwen. Hi. I don't know why I, I like punctuated that almost as if it were a question. Gwen, you there? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> We're here to talk about A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, the sequel to Hank Green's An Absolutely Remarkable Thing. I know one of my favorite books of 2018, and the sequel, which this is, is quickly following it. Gwen, what did you think of the book? So I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was a really interesting look at a lot of our currently pressing issues in our society, things about social media, um, questions about friendship, questions about humanity. I think it really digs deep into those sort of big important ideas about what makes us worthy, what makes life worth living, and how do we do that successfully, you know? What did you think? I liked it a lot. I, I don't know if I liked it as much of his first as his first book. It's hard because the first book took me by such surprise. The only, you know, I know the Green Brothers, obviously, from VidCon and from their stuff on YouTube, but obviously the only reference I have to either of their writings is John Green's writing, and he's a very different style writer. Uh, you know, like, like these books, I don't know if you would consider them, they're not really young adult novels, you know no. what I mean? Like, they, they focus on younger characters, but not in the way John's no. books are. So yeah, the, the first one hit me by surprise. This one I came in knowing a bit more what to expect, but I, I still liked it. There were still a lot of surprises for me in there, you know, even in just how he kind of changes up, you know, the way he approaches this as compared to his first book. Uh, you know, I think one of the things I really enjoyed so much about his first book was just how timely it felt, you know, and I think you hit the nose on the head with this one too. It also feels very timely. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's there's a certain struggle that I'm experiencing with media right now where I'll sit down to read something or watch something and it's hard for me to enjoy it and get into it because my brain's like, well, can't do any of that anymore. You know, like, oh my God, look at all those people out at a restaurant eating together. That's not, that's not now. Um, <laughs> but this, while it's still obviously, it's not written as if they're living through the COVID-19 situation that we are currently in, but there's a lot going on in here that feels eerily similar to what we're dealing with in terms of crises, you know, um, there's, there's some, some climate change related disasters in the book that felt creepy you know things like that there there's quite a few stuff um i, I think i'm just going to warn everybody now uh if Spoilers. for whatever reason you wanted Spoilers to read this coming. book <laughs> yep and you wanted it to be uh uh closely um you know closely guarded its secrets uh know that gwen and i liked it go read it <laughs> if uh, you don't care or you've already read it uh continue listening um yeah for me it was a lot of the economic bits right the the struggle, the, the, you know, not feeling as if, you know, I really related to that general feeling, you know, the book kind of puts off of, you know, in a post Carl world, you know, and I'm thinking of a post COVID world, you know, do some of these things even seem meaningful anymore? 
right? Like things that we used to put so much time and effort into. Now, obviously, it's not the same as, you know, discovering we're not alone in the universe, but, (laughs) you know, (laughs) staring staring death in the face still is a a great way to get you uh, very into your own mortality. Yeah, and I think that there's something interesting about the way that we're turning to social media for all of our socializing right now. And a lot of what was fascinating about the first book was the way that social media was used to create communities that, you know, solved the mysteries or tried to anyway, of this new, you know, this new world that the characters were living in where there's life out there. Um, And we're trying to sort of solve the mystery of how do we function as a society when the things that we're used to don't feel safe anymore and aren't safe anymore in a lot of cases. Um, So I think that that's a a really strong parallel. And I also, that like sense of despair that was captured here in terms of like the economics where people are not interested in going to work does feel similar to how people are like not able to go to work or not able to do the work they were doing before, especially when I think about entertainment industry type people. Um, You know, if you make your living through gathering humans together, that's not uh, not really going on <laughs> these days. No, it's not. I think we texted back and forth a little bit about it when the book was going on. I was almost like, when did he finish this? You know, even just the choice of using, you know, multiple times, right? Carl list off a couple of things. It's like, you know, you guys just don't right now have the ability or the capacity to handle like a war and a corrupt leader and a pandemic all at the same time. And I'm like, I just, that feels really on the nose, like really, uh, really on the nose. God, I wish we were better at dealing with those things right now. Is it, is it that we're just, us as human beings are just so predictable? Is that, that why this <laughs> felt so timely? Yeah, I don't know. I think, I think that there are definitely people out there who are like, able to look at patterns and be like, you know what, we're due for another one. But I'm not convinced that Hank is one of them. I think he's just someone who had a really interesting story to tell that happened to have some parallels to the situation that we're in now. Um, I think that he set out to tell, you know, a science fiction, like fantasy about there being life out there. I know he's really into the whole like Mars science world. So it makes sense that his novel would be about aliens, whereas, you know, his brother is about uh, other things like what does it mean to connect with other people and like how do we give life meaning and like teen angst, you know? So like I feel like their personalities are definitely reflected in their choice of genre. <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, so to to change course a, a little bit here, he's got a little bit of a different way of telling this story, right? So in yeah. the, the first book, it's all pretty much said one chapter, right, from April's perspective, which, I mean, works great for the first book. It's, it's fascinating. It first-person narrative, single character, really focused on her experience from her point of view, definitely. This one but doesn't this, do that. <laughs> no, so... Uh, and you're better at this than me, what would this technically be called? Because I feel like it does a couple of different things, right? We obviously switch narrative perspectives of the different characters, but we also get, um, you know, each chapter is interrupted, or between each chapter is interrupted by interludes that give us like these 
framings of what's going on, whether that's a news article or a news report or a transcript of a YouTube video or yeah, it just, it was really incredibly well constructed and obviously something very different than what he did before, which was like very welcome. Yeah, definitely. So it's still a first person narrative, um, just from multiple narrators, right? Like we don't have like the omnipotent narrator, like all seeing kind of situation here. We have like, here's one story told through different individual characters. Um, it's like an ensemble cast, I would, I would say. Right. Um, but he does a really nice job, I think, of creating a voice for each character. And that's something that some novelists are just not good at. Right. Um, some people, when you read their writing, you, first of all, you know that it's the author, right? Their voice is distinct, but their characters' voices don't vary too differently, right? Too greatly from what the writer sort of sounds and feels like. Um, And I think he did a nice job of not sort of falling into that trap, right? Um, I heard him talking, I forget if it was on YouTube or on his podcast with his brother, but he was talking about um, how some characters were definitely easier for him to like get inside their heads, like Andy, right? he's like, he's probably the closest (laughs) in like perspective and attitude and experience, right? He's like your nerdy white dude. So Hank was like, yeah, it was easy for me to get inside his character and his brain and be like, yes, here we are. Not so much with, you know, the woman of color. Um, Yeah. Maya or Miranda, you know, Right. People that have different experiences from him. But he did a good job. I think that he does a good job of trying to imagine life complexly, right? Trying to imagine what it would be like. How would a person who has these different experiences come at this problem? How would they explain the situation? Um, which, you know, is what a good writer does. They're able to get inside the character and make you forget that there is an author, Right. Well, then, so let's talk about those characters, because they're obviously different from where we last left them, um, you know, and their their journeys in this book are a little different, too. It's also interesting because, you know, when you're writing a sequel, your character has to go on another journey, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to expose those characters again to weakness, you know, and then they have to again fail at something and then be kind of built back up, which is something that already yeah. happened theoretically yeah. in the first book. You know, they have to continue to grow. And while, you know, obviously that happens in reality, people are sometimes narratively unsatisfied with that. Um, I was going to say, I think he does a really good job. Yeah, I like where we sort of pick up with our characters saying, like, so the world without April, for me turned into this right for Andy it was like I feel like I have to fill this role of being like this guy who says like kumbaya let's all love each other and like be better and I hate it (laughs) you know (laughs) Um, we have Miranda who's like I was really trying to get back into my science but it was hard because I had lost my friend and also there's aliens out there and we're not alone and we don't know enough about it and for the scientific mind I think it's hard to accept that there are some questions you're never going to have answers to. Right. So like Mm -hmm. 
I like where we picked up with them, not like the day after the last book ended, but a few months down the road, they've had some time to process, but they're not done, right? They are grieving Mm -hmm. and we all know that's a process that can last and they're figuring it out, but they don't have the answers yet. I think that's a good place to pick up the story. So I think that was well done. Um, And I know that you were excited to talk about the big guy. Carl, right? Well, so we get we get a lot of different perspectives from a lot of different characters, but this is the first time we get to go into the the mind, as it were, of Carl, the alien, uh, you know, entity or intelligence, consciousness, consciousness. That's what right? he would he would definitely say that. Yeah, he would call himself a consciousness. Um, you know, which was I think fascinating for a couple of reasons. One, it obviously leans very heavily on Hank's science background. You know what I mean? Uh, There are definitely some things I was like, I'm going to look that up (laughs) after I read it. (laughs) I'm like, is that the most common living microbe? I don't know. Um, Like what, what is a a pelagibacter? 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 I think it's Pelagibacter. Pelagibacter. That sounds more correct. Pelagibacter. But yeah, it's a pelagibacter. I, I listened to Hank did a podcast with another writer that was tied to the end of the audiobook, so mm-hmm. I grabbed that and listened to it. Um, but yeah, pelagibacter. Um, so Carl, yeah, I think getting in Carl's head was really fascinating. Obviously, once we get to spend time with April for the first time, we kind of I think we're hinted at that we're going to spend more time with Carl on this one, mm-hmm. obviously because he's no longer the mystery. Right. And, you know, if you're going to write a sequel to the the first book, obviously getting some answers to Carl would feel very satisfying. Um, so I think getting giant to robot see... in the room, you can't you can't ignore him. Right. Um, except I thought it was interesting when we actually get to know about him. Like I had been thinking of Carl, the alien as mechanical and. Not biological. Right. And this exposes the flaw in that thinking that while he presented in a mechanical form, he's biology, right? He's an organism. He's something living. He's lots of living things, actually, gradually taking over um, lots of other living things, which is interesting. And it was such a fascinating idea, Mm -hmm. the way that Carl functioned. And then getting to go inside his head, I thought was really interesting mostly because i feel you know there's this odd sort of dichotomy with the idea of aliens um species and (laughs) their kind of existence if we would ever meet them um you know kind of the scientific idea in the community is that if we were to ever go and meet an alien species coming here it would not be uh for peace and prosperity and fun because the only thing that pushes you that far away from your home in that sort of number is if you are out of resources and you need to take them. Um, So I like that uh, Hank's kind of way of solving that problem was to say, you know, that Carl was programmed to be benevolent, right? But then getting to see Carl as kind of this, you know, all forgiving idea of humanity. I know the the Carls in the thing compare themselves to 
gods, right? A good God and a bad God, yeah. right? Or, uh, you know, the forgiving God and the, the, you know, the merciful God right. versus Old Testament God, you know? <laughs> um, and I think that was really interesting, interesting area to kind of a comparison. And it was an interesting level of comparison that I don't think, you know, Hank didn't go too hard on, right? Like if he went too far into it, it would be too preachy, but I think he was just enough that it made them. It's not like this is, you know, paradise lost. We're not getting into biblical fan fiction here. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and that's not what most readers I think are looking for um, when they pick up this kind of book. But yeah, it was really a fascinating way of thinking about what aliens might look like if they showed up and interacted with us, as opposed to if they showed up and were like, Oh great. You have the resources we need. We're going to take these Bye." Um, you know? Yeah. So I guess then I think that the, the natural transition here is to talk about the anti-Carl, yeah. bad Carl, evil Carl. A minute ago, right? The, the less benevolent um, creature being, presence so whatever you want I, to call it. his brother yeah I'm, so i'm gonna throw this out here the thing i found most fascinating about um bad carl mm-hmm. um is that he's he's the bad guy of the book but he's he's really not a strong presence in the book if that makes any sense he's an idea but it's not like we ever the book doesn't go out of its way to show the bad things that bad Carl is doing. We just kind of get notice later that results you know, of his actions. We don't get to necessarily see, like we don't see him, you know, we, we give one thing, right. We get one big thing and that's when um, evil Carl takes over Miranda's body. Yeah. Right. We have one act of like, Obvious true violence. Villainy. Yeah. Yeah. True obvious violence and hostility by act of bad Carl. But everything else, even even when he likes him really and Carl subtle. come into contact. Yeah, it's just and it's really fascinating. And I wonder the book obviously works mm-hmm. by having other things to kind of put in the place of the antagonist. Well, I feel like but, that's what makes the antagonist effective, is it that he doesn't have to go out of his way to do evil things. He just sort of nudges people who already had the inclination to take advantage of, of things that, you know, he's made available, if that makes sense. Like he doesn't need to go out there and like take over every human being. He just has to take over a couple of them and offer them tools like Altus, right? Like the the space. Um, and then... Or access to the, the dream yeah, space. Yeah, and then right? let everybody, let humanity destroy itself. Um, I think that that's a big part of, of sort of the message of this novel, right? That we need to do better and be better, not necessarily because there is a good God and a bad God and, you know, aliens out there trying to force us one way or the other, but because we are dangerously close to making choices that are irreversibly harmful. Um, and we should just, we should be better. Like we can be, so why aren't we, you know? 
Um, I'm curious as to why one of the things I'm having a, a difficulty putting on, putting my hand on is just, is just why I think that that message, right. That they kind of tie up into nega Carl, anti Carl, bad Carl, I don't know, his brother, mm-hmm. um, you know, why it works so well. I feel like the first book um, does a very good job, essentially, is taking Peter Petrowicki and his movement and squarely solidifying them as the antagonists, right? Mm-hmm. And then when we're not dealing with the antagonists, we got plenty of time to deal with the mystery that is Carl, <laughs> right? Yeah. But I'm in this book. It's not as it's not as cut and dry. Right. I never feel like, you know, and we'll talk about this more with Altus, but I I never feel like Altus ever, you know, Altus feels similar to anti-Carl in the sense that it's it's certainly a force working in force at times against our our heroes. But it's not it also doesn't feel like it's the antagonist. The book feels like it doesn't it doesn't have like a strong antagonist. Um, but I think it really works, but I'm surprised that it works in the absence of a large mystery. Yeah. I think I understand what you, what you mean by that, that we don't have the two clear sides and we don't have the big question anymore. Once we get, you know, halfway through, we know we're told what Carl is but you still want to keep reading and you still want to see how sort of the problem is going to resolve. And I think that's part of how, how it works, right? It's not the mystery. It's like the crisis that needs solving, Mm. you know? I like that. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I also, so there's, there's a line on page 235 that Maya is like questioning like why we bother to try to fight the uh, the anti-Carl, right? Like mm-hmm. why, why oppose him at all if he wants to become a god like and let us destroy ourselves? If, like if he's going to ultimately lead to us being peaceful, whether that's because we're all under his control or not, like why fight it? You know, she says, we are cruel to ourselves, to each other, to other life. We're selfish, short-sighted, hateful fools. Why not just have peace? And I think that's a really interesting question the more I think about it. Like, obviously, (laughs) we want to have control of our own actions and destiny and thoughts and feelings. But what is the point of us all destroying each other? You know what I mean? Like if our it's, if our nature is to destroy and to hurt and to harm, like why do those in power allow that to be what happens? You know what I mean? It's it's a piece at what cost, right? right? Like it's it's always, you know, and this is a big science fiction, you know, the the philosophy of science fiction is as it were, you know, it's a big problem that a lot of sci-fi tries to grapple with. You know, there's there's that magical end all be all cure 
to the suffering. You throw the ring into Mordor and the evil goes away. You, you know, you stop the horde and, and things get better. You solve the problem, but at the same time, like at what cost, right? There's always a cost to it. It's that sort of, does the end justify the means scenario? If we're all walking around as zombies or people not truly in control of our own lives, you know, as, as a, yep. a species, right? Free is will is worth, something we uh, put. Is it worth an end to suffering if there's also no true joy, I guess, right? Because if you take away the one and the, the choices that we make, you know, and I think that's one of the things about like the sort of sense of numbness that people are feeling and like the loss of the dream in this book. Mm-hmm. Like that feels like a, a foreshadowing, a precursor to what the anti-Carl wants the world to be like, right? Well, and it's just, you know, and I guess we'll transition here into talking about Altus and Peter. Um, you know, I guess it's it's it all comes down to Altus, right? Altus being the big tool that the anti-Peter is using. This sort of full immersion VR mindscape that accesses the dream from the last book that allows people to just live out their lives in either completely virtual sandboxes where they can do whatever they want or in, you know, uh, basically true experiences of other people, right? And It does sound really, really cool. Like... I, I, Oh, I'm going to tell you, I'll be straight up front. I'd have been an Andy (laughs) mad, mad straight in this. Like, I just, I would be an Andy. Like, there's no way. I like wasn't into it until we got to the point where I think, I guess it's Miranda's explaining the like sandbox, not the sandbox, the, the experiential part of it where she's like i was learning calculus but i wasn't learning it like i was experiencing something else learning calculus and i was getting to see how their brain worked that sounds so cool and like from a teacher's perspective oh my god if i could get inside of a kid's head and see like and understand fully how like how they're processing things that would be amazing right well it's as with, you know, what I think this is an allegory for, you know, it, it does have the ability to allow us to understand people better, right? What what would be better than being able to literally experience what, you know, a minority is going through when they're walking on the street? Or like you said, in education, right? A kid with dyslexia or a learning disability. Like, it's hard for, you know, as someone with dyslexia it's hard for me to describe to people what that actually feels like but if they could feel it if they could see it if they could understand it um you know but maya brings up the age-old point you know and this is with media consumption in general when she's talking to andy and and i don't remember the exact quote but Mm -hmm. essentially it's what's to prevent people from just intaking the same experiences they've always intook Right. Yeah. What's what's going to stop them from making their own echo chamber and just living in that? <laughs> right. Particularly with the Altus space being this this capital, you know, capitalist, um, you know, this capitalist machine. It, it's not. You know, the experiences all have to be bought by their their internal 
their internal money. You, there's no free access to it. It needs an 8K VR headset. <laughs> Jesus, you know, there's there's just no way that this is going to be available in lower income communities. It's going to or... create new layers of exclusion. Exactly. Yeah. So, assumably, Altus is the big tech companies, right? Like that's the allegory oh, here. Altus I'm is sure. A hundred percent. It's it's Facebook, right? It's it, TikTok, it's Facebook. It's, it's Twitter, Twitter, TikTok. It's YouTube. It's all of those. Snapchat, things. right? All, all of those things the- that are collecting our data and trying to figure out how to sell us. But it, I don't think it's just that. I think there's an allusion here to how powerful those companies have become and our place in their inhabitants, as, as inhabitants of it. Uh, I reference digital almost citizens? the situation. Exactly, as digital citizens of that space. And I think the allegory is there with Valverde. So, you know, Peter essentially you know, Altus exists on Valverde, but it's, it's so independent by having its own monetary system, by having its, its own citizens and its own this and its own that, like it's essentially not untouchable by governments, but well, also the governing Valverde as the place to be like, it's, well, it's not a place that's going to obviously, you know, like that government is not going to try to control Altus. It's been it's been bought. It's been paid off. Well, but it's even even harder though because you know, it even with the existence of something like Bitcoin, right? Or them mm-hmm. using their own monetary system, that's not actually something that you know, states have been able to stop. And how right? do you tackle like digital it. currency, right? How how does a state get to take part of that revenue and turn it back to doing the good things that companies don't necessarily do of their own volition, right? There's there's really important functions of private capital and there's really important functions of government. And when private capital finds a way to cut government out entirely, I think it creates a whole host of problems. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's dangerous, right? And obviously Altus is dangerous you know and like i said i i I would have been an andy so square nose on the head i you know like i would mourn the loss of this incredible technology but you know uh, i think april says it and andy in her last conversation like it's not that altus and access to the dream again was bad it was that the the how much that power had condensed, right? Uh, and how much control lied now in Altus's hands from economic power to social to, you know, all of that. It just made them dangerous. It, the same sort of dangerous that, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all those things are in, in ways that they give examples of in this book, Right whether that's the thread, right, being this sort of anonymous collective. I thought that was an interesting concept, too, that I the thread. It's a super interesting concept. I mean, we're used to influencers, right, individuals who gather a following and share their views and 
make you want to buy their shampoo and whatever. But the idea of an anonymous influencer and a collective, right? A collective of experts who are trying to sway public opinion. Like, that's really interesting to me. It's almost like if you took the idea of like a think tank and made it like shiny social media, you know? Yeah, I, I don't think the collective part's the far-fetched part no. here. Or not far-fetched, but I don't think the collective part is the difficult part, right? There, you know, most YouTubes now are created by yeah. teams, right? Even if the personality is a personality, right? They've got writers and teams that are exactly helping them make it work. But yeah, it's the anonymous bit that I find fascinating for sure. Right? This is not a collective that was created to entertain. Right. They're not making fun, fun cat videos. They're trying to make you follow a certain line of thinking and, you know, vote a certain way and spend your money a certain way um, to support certain causes or not. And that's, that's what I think is interesting because I think there's a lot on social media currently and on the internet at large that is trying to, trying to push people, trying to nudge people one way or the other. And there are some sort of more honest ways of nudging people. And then there's like, you know, Russian meddling in us elections, trying well, to nudge people. Which the book touches on, right? Yeah. April, well, first off, obviously, Bad Carl, right, exists as just straight up a lot of those, you know, influences people. Yeah, just kind of repeating themselves and retweeting and sharing, Bot yada, yada, yeah. yada. Um, but, you know, that includes April and Maya, right, who strategically organize a lot of people, right, and essentially weaponize them. You know, they don't you know, obviously for good and not, they you know, created a you know, movement. Right. And not, a, not, well, yes, but when, you know, that's the, that's the thing, right. When you create a movement and say, move here. <laughs> well, it right. It, it doesn't like, what is the difference between a movement and, um, you know, malicious foreign interference right like well the the malicious foreign interference isn't made up by people people in that community who are affected by the thing the movement bothers and are impassioned right like exactly. that's the so it's it's the people obviously who is it that is trying to create the thing but the thing that's interesting is if you if you follow the the bots ultimately you do end up with like the maga red hat culture like there are real people obviously who are now espousing the views that were originally being put forth by bots you know what i mean like i know this is like a super political way to look at the thing and talk about the thing but things that start out as a genuine movement can then get you know sold out bought up and twisted to suit the needs of corporations, governments, whatever. I keep thinking about the way that like products get greenwashed, you know, like, oh, all our bottles are now 100% recyclable. But then they don't mention that like their factory is still wasting gallons and gallons of water every year. Things like that, you know? Yeah, well, it, it, you know, it sounds nice, but it's not it's not doing anything meaningful. It's just, yeah. Right. So like. 
even if it feels like it's just important to know your sources, right? And to be able to find, you know, what is the true power behind this? Is it people? Is it genuinely members of a community working towards a common goal? Or is there money at play, you know? Right. Well, and that, you know, money at play brings us back to Altus. Obviously, yeah. Altus is driving factor is money profit and you know profit at all costs without even any knowledge of how their product works or if it's safe oh my god the it's so mind-boggling to me the arrogance displayed that they're like yeah no it's cool we have the technology so we're gonna make money off of it does it matter if it's safe you know like Obviously, it matters to a lot of people, but not the ones in charge. It's it's funny because in this book, I never I, I'm I feel like Miranda, right? Like I never find Peter uh, scary, right? He's not menacing in the way that he is in the last book, mm -hmm. sort of as an antagonist. You know, I pity him. I I do. Like he's just so caught up. You sad, strange little man. Right. Yeah. He's just he's just so caught up in this. And when you finally obviously get to the point where he's like, you know, it yeah, it's just it's that whole principled thing. You know, like it, you know, obviously I, Peter's movement in the first book being similar to the Make America Great Again sort of, you know, this sort of extremist left right sort of thing. Yeah. And um you know, like, but at least, at least that Peter, you know, or the uh, essence of that idea of Peter seemed like, well, at least he had something he, he seemed believed to have in. Principles, right? He seemed to have something but, that he was fighting for that he f really truly believed in, that he felt was worth going out and getting followers for. Right. And, and at the base of that, you know, and this is a book one that, even if question. You agree with it. Particularly if, it, you know, the the thing is like, hey, maybe extraterrestrial intelligence from another Earth, not necessarily our friend. It's kind of a reasonable argument, I won't lie. Yeah. Right? Obviously, the way he achieves power through that by peddling fear is a problem, you know, but... To just he, does he have just a sells it. Point, right? He just sells it. All of it. He just yeah. He takes his legitimate point and he throws it in the garbage and says, "Give me money." Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing that Andy is struggling with in the beginning of the book, which is why I think it it's really interesting to sort of look at those two characters in opposition. Where Andy's like, "It would be so easy to sell out, right?" Right. I mean, particularly I at that point. I could leverage my followers into a lot of money if I wanted to, but I feel like that's not the right thing to do. Well, and I, and I know that it's not the right thing to do, you know, where, well, and Andy's ability, yeah, no, give me that money. <laughs> well, and even Andy later on in the book, right. Yeah. He, he's like, God, I feel so free just knowing that I just get, just, this is just how I need to use people. And I don't have to weigh every decision and thought I make with who's going to think about it and, you know, is it going to be on brand? Is it going to be at message? Is it going to make people feel good? Yeah. You know, it, when he can just, he can just let loose and go, 
you, you know, <laughs> sorry. I'll bleep that. <laughs> yeah. He, um, and I mean, that's part, I think of the, the pressure of being a public facing individual, right? Like I do not envy our celebrities, our personalities, our, uh, politicians even who, you know, can't have a bad day in public because it won't be on brand, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's gotta be a really hard way to live. <laughs> and I think there's, there's a lot to be said for the way that this book and the first one examine sort of those questions of like, what, what do we do to people when we make them celebrities? Right. Like, well, and celebrities now there's nowhere to hide. Yeah. There's nowhere to run. We're always on, we're always performing. We're always presenting. It's it's exhausting. And there are so many more venues you're expected to present yourself on, right? Like your old your olden days celebrities had to worry about the media and the paparazzi, right? Whatever, fine. In theory, you could escape that. But like you're your own paparazzi now. Like you're expected to be on Instagram and on Twitter and, you know, making content and generating views even when you're on vacation like even when your show is on hiatus like you're supposed to be engaged you need to keep them interested so they'll come back and that's part of your deal which like oof that sounds exhausting (laughs) it does sound exhausting and like so obviously there are rewards but fame fortune you know riches Private islands, no. Um, So to wrap up, um, one last question. Do you think we, I guess, do you think we needed this, the sequel? This is clearly the end of this story, right? He makes a very... For sure. You know, I, I know for me, after the first book, I obviously there was more... You know, since we were hearing it from Maple's perspective, it was likely that she was not dead. Yeah. Would make writing a book very difficult. (laughs) Um, You know, but I don't know. I felt like the first book ended so well. I didn't think we'd get a follow up so soon. Right up until, you know, the very end, the knock knock or whatever it was at the very, very like last paragraph of the first book. Um up until that point i was like okay so this is where the story ends you've made your point right like i get the message of this novel i get the ideas that i should be thinking about and i liked it i was into it i didn't feel like i needed a sequel until it was like wait a minute but little cliffhanger here and then i was like oh but there's more and then it was like yeah actually i would love to know what is the deal with the samurai robots, you know? Um, <laughs> I forgot that the samurai robots were also a thing in this story, not just a vehicle to talk about us. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I don't know that this was, like, strictly speaking necessary, but it was definitely a good read, and it was definitely something that helped me to think a little bit about the current situation that we're in um, and anything that helps you to process the, the experiences you're living through um, is a good thing. I think right now, especially 
um, when it's so difficult to like wrap your mind around things to sort of break it into the component parts, you know, the questions of humanity being uh, presented to you through the vehicle of aliens and social media. Uh, yeah. I'm glad that this book exists. All right. So just to end, do you have any like favorite musings from the book? Just little things. <laughs> I don't know if I have favorite like musings, but I was entertained at the way that Carl shifted from being a samurai robot to being a little furry monkey. That was, I did like that. That was cute. I liked that. And that again, you know, helped me make the shift from thinking of Carl as technology to thinking of Carl as biology. Um, For sure. That was a great way of doing that. Also, it makes him more relatable, mm -hmm. right? Like he no longer feels like this ominous thing. If he's not this big ominous thing, exactly. if he's like oh, the little monkey with the watch around his neck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I think uh, I really liked the concept of the book of good times. Yes, that was fun. Uh, and the introduction of Bex as a new character, I really enjoyed. Yeah, we didn't get, to, we didn't talk, we didn't talk about much about Bex, but yeah, I liked, I liked the whole Bex, Andy, book of good times. I thought that was all really well done. I agree. Yeah, the um, the way that we think about things as being either technology or biology. I think sometimes we think about ourselves that way too. Um, you know, Carl is us. You know, I'm not just the thoughts my brain has. I am also the body it, it inhibits, you know? So it's nice to be reminded of that every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. All right, everyone. Well, thank you very much for joining us on another edition of The Non-Pro Show. Uh, if you guys are interested, obviously, pick up the book, check it out. Even, uh, you know, we didn't spoil everything. There's a still a ton more in there if you haven't read it and you just listened to this. Otherwise, um, make sure you give us a like, a subscription, a follow. Uh, make sure you rate us on your favorite podcaster app with a glowing review. We accept no subpar reviews. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, yeah, make sure you uh, follow us for more content. I'm sure we'll be doing uh, more of this stuff soon. Yeah. Have a good night, everybody. Bye. This has been a non-productive media presentation. Executive producer, Frank Hablaoui. This program and many others like it on the Non-Productive Network is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Please share it, but ask before trying to change it or sell it. For more information, visit non-productive.com.